Britain, the United States, and Japan invaded the Soviet Union, sent troops. The United States sent about 10,000. It's important for folks to understand that the United States invaded the Soviet Union. The reverse never happened. Hurricane Irma set a record for the most intense storm in long duration anywhere on Earth. Hurricane Maria went from a Category 1 to a Category 5 in about half a day. Why? Because our planet, and hence our oceans, are warming. We are seeing some of the hottest ocean temperatures on the planet in the Western Caribbean Sea. And we all know that that is jet fuel for hurricanes and an increase in sea level rise. You can't eradicate the history. We will not allow one person to be forgotten. We will not allow one person who is laying in a cemetery to be forgotten. We will not allow an ounce of history to be wiped away. We will not allow it because we are the people of conscience and goodwill, and we're going to speak the historical narrative of liberation. Thank you for just listening to me just a little bit. It's good to be here today. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Today we're going to finish with our look at important anniversaries being marked right now. In the second half, we'll have one more talk about the Russian Revolution, which happened 100 years ago. On our last show, we heard a major address given here in D.C. by the scholar and activist Anthony Montero. Today's remarks are by the economist Richard Wolff, who breaks down some seldom heard history and explains what worked and what did not work in the former Soviet Union. And because part of that history is the fact that the Soviet Union was decisive in the defeat of Nazi Germany, Wolff's segment will serve as this month's episode of the F Word about fascism. And during this week, when the world is meeting at the UN Climate Summit in Bonn, Germany, we'll maintain our focus on Puerto Rico with voices from aboard the Arctic Sunrise, the Greenpeace ship scheduled to dock in Puerto Rico and assist in rebuilding sustainable communities there. All that is coming up later in the show, but first our headlines. The House of Representatives passed Thursday a GOP tax bill that will raise taxes on many middle-class families, cut corporate taxes, and in a last-minute addition to the bill, cut health care for 13 million people. Protests against the plan continue. On Wednesday, activists and legislators rallied at the Capitol. Chad Bolt of the group Indivisible addressed the crowd. We know this bill will result in a tax increase for 47 million people. Uh, It gives the average person at the top an average tax cut of $280,000. And we found out just last night in a new version of the bill released in the Senate uh, that it'll lead to 13 million more people uninsured. Premiums going up 10%, and that's because as part of this tax scam, Republicans have decided to repeal part of the ACA too. Alright, so we know this is a fight for everybody. This is not just a fight over taxes. This is a fight for everyone. The tax legislation is now headed to the Senate, where its fate is uncertain, as one Republican, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, has already voiced opposition to it. Dozens of black immigrants and their advocates also lobbied on Capitol Hill on Wednesday to prevent deportations. 
because a decision on the Temporary Protected Status Program is due next week. The TPS program, which we have been covering in recent weeks, has allowed about a half million immigrants from 10 countries to live in the United States who cannot return to their home countries due to violence, natural disasters, or other conditions. TPS for 50,000 Haitian recipients will expire on January 22, 2018, but a decision about whether to change that deadline is expected from the Trump administration before Thanksgiving. Earlier this month, Trump announced that TPS would end for roughly 2,500 Nicaraguans after January 2019 and dozens gathered on Sunday to continue the fight to preserve the site of an African-American burial ground that has been paved over and could be slated for additional construction in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland. Africans recently freed from slavery settled on and built the River Road area just after the Civil War and established a community that includes the Macedonia Baptist Church, which is still standing, though the community around it was systematically removed in the 1950s and 1960s. Activist Marsha Coleman Adebayo addressed the crowd. By the mid-1950s, white businesses in Montgomery County decided to disenfranchise our community and to steal our land through unethical tax schemes, intimidation, and harassment. This vile plan disenfranchised an entire community that had already suffered for over 400 years. Mm. Once the government and businesses stole the land, they turned their attention to Moses Cemetery. They desecrated and destroyed the final resting place of the first generation of freed Africans in Montgomery County. But we are here today, nearly 50 years later, and ready to complete the journey of justice. Though Montgomery County officials say that there is no additional construction slated for the site, advocates for the burial ground have seen plans for a parking garage there and want the area turned instead into a permanent memorial and museum dedicated to the historic black community. And speaking of community preservation, or more like preservation of our species, young people from D.C. and around the country in Bonn, Germany, for the U.N. Climate Summit comprised a people's delegation and presented a platform markedly different from the official U.S. presentation touting fossil fuels. Candy Mossett of the Indigenous Environmental Network addressed a gathering at the summit this week. Yes, the Dakota Access Pipeline happened, and they might have kicked us out of our communities. They might have held us, the United States government, at gunpoint and forced us out of camp when all we had was sage in one hand and sweetgrass in the other. But we did not lose, and we are not losing. We are still fighting in our communities. We are still fighting at the source of the problem, in the Bakken Shale oil fields to keep it in the ground. What's being pushed here at the COP and the 22 COPs before this is carbon pricing and carbon trading, false solutions to the climate crisis. What we have to realize as humanity is that if you want to see who's going to save us, look at the panel that just came before. It's not the older men in business suits that are going to save us, I'm sorry to say. It's going to be the youth and the diversity and the people that make up our country. That's right. Give it up. And as the UN Climate Summit winds down, news broke that the Keystone One pipeline has spilled 200,000 gallons of oil in South Dakota 
and that the Trump administration has ended an important rule that curbed trophy hunters who slaughter wildlife in Africa. And now we're going to continue our headlines about world affairs with our geopolitical analyst, author, and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, there are definitely major events on the world stage during the past week. Zimbabwe, Poland, and 45 wound up his Asia trip. But let's start with Zimbabwe. I saw one post from leadership of Friends of the Congo saying, well, if it looks like a coup and sounds like a coup and quacks like a coup, it must be a coup. But apparently the military is saying that what's happened there is not a coup. Robert Mugabe is being detained. So let's just start with that. Well, I think that the military is trying to portray this as an inter-party event. That is to say, ZANU-PF, the ruling party headed by Mr. Zimbabwe, excuse me, Mr. Mugabe, and a Freudian slip there. And they're basically asking him to reverse some of the purges that have taken place of leading cadre. And that's why they portray it as not being a coup. They say they're not approaching him as commander-in-chief of the armed forces or president of Zimbabwe, but as leader of the ruling party. But I think that in order to understand this conflict, we need to step back and look historically and understand that that southern cone of Africa has been racked with political ethnic conflict. Recall that 120 years ago that the so-called Anglo-Bar War erupted, one of the bloodiest conflicts in world history, a conflict that introduced the concept of concentration camps, for example, that were directed against the defeated Afrikaners, the Boers, so-called. But in any case, to fast forward to the liberation struggle, 1965 to 1980, uh, that was a bloody war. Uh, The Africans were fighting a white minority regime led by uh, Ian Smith, uh, backed by South Africa. And the problem there was that the liberation forces were divided. There were two liberation forces, uh, ZANU, the Zimbabwe African National Union, uh, eventually led by Robert Mugabe uh, and supported by China for most of its tenure, and the Zimbabwe African People's Union, uh, which was led by Joshua Nkomo, mostly supported by Moscow. And the Zimbabwe African National Union was the only liberation force that was backed by China and that part of Africa that wound up prevailing uh, during that bloody conflict. Now, 30 years ago, approximately 1987, there was a shotgun marriage between ZANU and ZAPU with ZANU-PF emerging and with Robert Mugabe uh, emerging as the preeminent leader. But I think that the beginning of what we're talking about that happened this week begins with land reform approximately 15 years ago when in a remarkable development in world history, the ZANU-PF tried to reverse the results of settler colonialism by expropriating the land from the European farmers who had only arrived, actually mostly after 1945, not necessarily with the commencement of colonialism in the 1890s. Their roots were very shallow, unlike in South Africa where the Europeans arrived in 1652. The United States, Britain, Australia slapped sanctions on Zimbabwe. They helped to drive the economy into the ditch. They had world-class inflation of the kind you've never seen before. Uh, For example, you could go to a bar and order a beer 
that costs perhaps 100,000 Zim dollars, by the time you finish drinking it, you would have to pay 250,000 Zim dollars. <laughs> That's how inflation was then. Now, the kind of narrative that you're hearing nowadays, of course, is racked with a kind of male supremacy. We're, we're told that the problem is that 93-year-old Robert Mugabe in power since 1980, that his Waterloo begins in 1996 when he marries a former member of his secretarial pool at State House, uh, now Grace Mugabe, now actually Dr. Grace Mugabe. Uh, she received a PhD from the University of Zimbabwe, even though apparently she didn't write a dissertation. Uh, as noted, he's 41 years older than she is. Apparently, she began as a kind of traditional first lady, cutting ribbons and all the rest, but of late has had a desire political power, which led her and her husband to oust a former vice president, Joyce Majuru, uh, who was also a leader of the liberation struggle. Interestingly enough, the military, which has now intervened, uh, supposedly is against Dr. Mugabe, Grace Mugabe, because she doesn't apparently have any liberation movement credentials. And they're in favor of the recently deposed Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa because he does. But interestingly enough, when Joyce Majuro was ousted and her liberation credentials are more sterling uh, than Emerson Mnangagwa, uh, they did not react at all, interestingly enough. I think that uh, one of the problems that we see with regard to the discourse in the United States is that Mr. Mugabe is demonized, but I think he's demonized not necessarily because he was depicted as a tyrant because, of course, the United States has a high level for tyranny. Uh, look at their support for uh, Paul B. in Cameroon or the fact that Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has been in bed for years, at least when he was head of ExxonMobil, with the dictator of Equatorial Guinea. I think the issue comes down to land reform, and the U.S. and their allies would like to see uh, Mr. Mugabe punished by any means necessary, uh, even if it means a military coup, which apparently this is not, just so that that'll send a signal to any others who might seek to revert, reverse the fruits of settler colonialism, particularly in North America, where settler colonialism reigns supreme. Now, where do we go from here? It, it's unclear. Uh, Mr. Mugabe might become sort of a figurehead. There's a party congress taking place in a few weeks where he may be coerced to step down. In any case, the military is apparently detaining many of his comrades, which means that the party Congress, he might not have that many votes to stay on. There are elections taking place in 2018, and apparently at that point, the uh, military will get their way. I should also mention that in terms of understanding the history of Zimbabwe and distinguishing it from South Africa, it's not only the fact that settler colonialism begins in South Africa in the 17th century and in Zimbabwe in the late 19th century. It's also the fact that the European minority in Zimbabwe was never more than about 250,000. It's about 5 million strong in South Africa. And as you know, uh, that European minority in South Africa has sent to the United States uh, Charlize Theron, Elon Musk, and a, a host of other uh, Europeans from South Africa. Uh, South Africa, of course, is the largest investor, foreign, a foreign investor in Zimbabwe, although China plays a major role. Historically, China has been the chief external ally of ZANU, going back to the liberation struggle of the 1960s. Uh, but in any case, it's going to be uh, a very steep uphill climb, I'm afraid, going forward for our friends and comrades in Zimbabwe.
Well, let's go to Poland, kind of like Charlottesville transported to Europe, a very large march and uh, rally by the extreme right in Poland. And uh, people came from other countries, apparently, to join in this, this march. Well, this march that took place this past Sunday was a kind of woodstock for white supremacists and neo-Nazis. 60,000 strong, as noted by yourself, marches and demonstrators from the pan-European world, including, I'm afraid, from North America as well. Uh, they were in support of the so-called Law and Justice Party, the ruling right-wing party in Poland. And I think one of the takeaways that people on this side of the Atlantic particularly need to consider is that during the pre-1989 struggle for Poland, there was a lot of support for the forces who have now surged to power. I don't really think that our friends on this side of the Atlantic thought through very carefully who they were supporting. I think they got caught up in U.S. press coverage, mainstream press coverage, uh, demonizing communist rule in Warsaw, and that led them to this blunder. And I think that there's also a particular message uh, to the core audience, speaking of the black community, because as you know, our leadership made a decision some decades ago to turn away from international affairs in order to concentrate on domestic struggles. But the problem there is, is that our antagonists did not turn away from international affairs. In fact, they are able to create momentum in the international arena, such as this demonstration in Poland, and then use that momentum to come back here and bite us in the behind. And I think that this demonstration in Poland is evidence of that because I think it's going to give tremendous momentum to those who were marching in Charlottesville in August 2017 with the tacit, if not explicit, support of the 45th president of the United States of America. Well, you know, I don't want to end without at least kind of referring to the end of, of Donald Trump's visit to Asia. Are there any final takeaways from that trip? I saw one commentator saying that at the beginning of the trip, Donald Trump thought he was the most powerful man in the world, but by the, by its end, the president of China was the most powerful. <laughs> so what's your take? Well, I think that's a fair assessment because... As we tried to point out on these airwaves, there were two major trends in the preliminary road to this trip to Asia. Number one, China is number one, as the New York Times pointed out a few days ago. Uh, within a few years, China will be the world leader in quantum computing and artificial intelligence and green energy and robotics. And the United States might be left to export soybeans, petroleum, waste paper and cardboard to China which obviously spells doom for the U.S. working class. On the other hand, Mr. Trump was trying to knock together an encirclement of China featuring Japan, Australia, India in particular. I don't think Vietnam will be joining, fortunately. And there was some momentum with regard to that encirclement plan, but it's unclear as we speak as to which trend will prevail. But in any case, Mr. Trump has received terrible reviews in the mainstream press, which I don't think we should find surprising. Well, before we go, though, I think that we should mention that there are also like major events happening in terms of media. Uh, we're on Pacifica, very embattled, uh, independently funded media. We're having a fundraiser this week to to help the network be solvent in terms of this major settlement 
bills that we have to pay in New York to the Empire State Building for the transmitter, all of that. But this is happening at the same time that RT has been made, the Rush Today, the RT uh, network is being made to register as a foreign agent. And then the Russian Duma, in return, has voted to make all American media that receives any funding or from the government made them register in Russia as foreign agents. So we talked about this before, but as someone who is a commentator from time to time on RT, what, what do you say about this? Well, I'm headed to RT as we speak to do a commentary and uh, let the record show that I'm not the agent of a foreign power. But seriously, I think that this is a ball blatant effort to narrow the political discourse and first RT, next Pacifica. That is to say, Pacifica has a dog in this fight, and I hope our audience knows that. Well, we certainly intend to keep our dog in the fight here, uh, reporting from the belly of the beast. I've been speaking with uh, our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, whose most recent books are The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox, and also Storming the Heavens, African Americans and the Early Fight for the Right to Fly. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. Well, speaking of media and culture, in theaters this week is the animated feature The Breadwinner. It is really beautifully rendered and tells a moving story about the sweet and spunky Paravana, a doe-eyed beauty who was forced to dress as a boy to make a living for her family under the despotic anti-woman rule of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Set just before the U.S. invasion in 2001, the breadwinner sets up the ultimate hero versus villain plot, but may feel a bit dated as the U.S. invasion has since killed thousands of civilians and as the U.S. ratchets up even further what is the longest running war in U.S. history. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, fighting for a sustainable future for Puerto Rico. Stay with us. Every man got the right to decide his own destiny And in this judgment there is no partiality So harm in arms with arms We'll fight this little struggle Cause that's the only way because this is a moment um, not to abandon Puerto Rico and all of the peoples affected in the Caribbean, from the Virgin Islands to Barbuda to Dominica to the people of the Gulf Coast and people here in Florida and people who've been impacted by wildfires. We want to be clear to say that climate has already changed. 
and this is going to continue to happen at a much faster pace and a more frequent pace. The Hurricane Irma hit on September 20th and it has been six weeks and people in Puerto Rico still do not have clean water and more than half of the people in Puerto Rico do not have electricity. So this is not a business as usual or a moment uh, for Wall Street or corporations to make money off of vulnerable communities. This is a moment to provide a proactive vision, strong coordination, and a regenerative economic and environmental approach to the crisis informed by the people of Puerto Rico. There is no meaningful reconstruction there um, unless people have access to clean water. There is no meaningful reconstruction unless Puerto Rican people get to decide what happens in the rebuilding effort. And so for us, this is an, a moment that we are in solidarity as the Climate Justice Alliance, the Our Power campaign, Our Power Puerto Rico campaign, um, to really th say that we need a full debt relief for Puerto Rico so that it can recover in dignity. We need a lifting of the Jones Act because it's an unfair and unjust law that has delayed relief to the people of Puerto Rico. And we need to be able to ensure transparency in the distribution of materials and how decisions are made. And we need to be clear that from the from the government, from the Trump administration, that there's no more loans. And right now there has been a loan package that has been going through the U.S. House of Representatives that is about more loans. And what we're saying is that that's not okay. That is not uh, acceptable. This week, the House Committee on Natural Resources began to talk about hurricane relief efforts. And we know that they talked about the, the debt and devastation and regulations. But we know that they're also putting forward this vision of trying to profit from people's pain. And they are trying to talk about this is a direct quote from uh, Rep. Louis Gomart, Republican from Texas, that Puerto Rico has the potential of being the Hong Kong of the United States where businesses would flood there, which we know means lax labor laws, tax loopholes for the wealthy, privatization, and keys to the fossil fuel industry. And so that is why we're here today on the Arctic sunrise uh, with communities from uh, South Florida, from nationally organizing and demanding a just recovery and a just transition. So with no further ado, I'd like to bring our compañera Yoka um, to come to speak. Thank you, Cindy. Um, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. I know it's a hot South Florida day. Um, I'm actually here to um, um, to speak to you about something that is obviously for us in South Florida very much present in our life, and that's climate change. Um, as I said, as Cindy mentioned, I am the director of No Planeta B. I actually work as a climate change educator, uh, but I'm here as an activist, also as a mother, and I'm also from Puerto Rico. Uh, the government report, the NCA4 report that just came out uh, the last few days, has claimed that the planet has entered the warmest period ever recorded in modern history. With global average air temperatures increasing by 1.8 degrees over the last 115 years. Year to date, from January to October of 2017, 
Average temperatures for the contiguous U.S. are the third warmest on record. Every state across the U.S. have had above average temperatures for the first 10 months of the year. And also the second wettest of on record. To put this in a local context, Port Miami, from January to October, we've had the hottest record um, break broken. Average summer temperatures in Miami have risen 2.1 Fahrenheit since 1970. For Miami, the first 90 Fahrenheit degree day came one month soon. Warmer days are on the rise across the globe. Of course, oceans play a critical role in the Earth's temperature, but because 93% of the energy from human-caused warming goes into our oceans, the planet is experiencing a more intense water cycle, which is why we've observing a global increase in heavy precipitation across the globe. We've seen it in Texas, we've seen it around the planet, and we're seeing it here in Miami. The 2017 Atlantic hurricane season so far has had 17 named storms, including 10 hurricanes and six major hurricanes. Hurricane season may not be over, but it has definitely secured a place in the history books. This hyperactive hurricane season has generated more destructive landfalling storms than the past few years combined. The U.S. has never been hit by three storms this strong in the same season in modern records. And let's remember that Harvey dumped 33 trillion gallons of water and will cost the state over $100 billion, more than Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Irma set a record for the most intense storm in long duration anywhere on Earth. Hurricane Maria went from a Category 1 to a Category 5 in about half a day. Why? Because our planet, and hence our oceans, are warming. We are seeing some of the hottest ocean temperatures on the planet in the Western Caribbean Sea. And we all know that that is jet fuel for hurricanes and an increase in sea level rise. We are pumping so much carbon into our limited atmosphere that is warming our planet, plain and simple. We may think our atmosphere is vast and limitless, but it's not. If you would take your car and drive upwards to the, to the troposphere, it would only take you nine miles to get there, which is about the same distance from here to Coconut Grove. Wow. This is our safe blanket. This is the reason why we have life on Earth. And because of our extractive carbon-based economy, we're filling it with heat-trapping gases from carbon pollutions as it would have been an open sewage. It's science, plain and simple. You may look from the left, and you may look from the right. And no matter what side you stand, our planning is warming and our climate is changing. That debate is over. To quote a well-known climate scientist, a thermometer is not Republican or a Democrat. And to follow on on this campaign's theme, I'll quote Martin Luther King that says, we may have come all on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you just heard Cindy Weissner and Yoka Arditi Rocha speaking aboard the Greenpeace ship, the Arctic Sunrise, before it headed from Miami, Florida to Puerto Rico, where Greenpeace and other organizations will assist local leaders in rebuilding sustainable communities. When we come back, on the ground, second examination of the Russian Revolution at its centennial. Today, by economist Richard Wolff. Stay with us. Amina Alada Akta. I am the one dreaming beautifully. Amina Alada Akta. I do dream. I do dream. 
I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I've been a professor of economics all my adult life, and I continue to teach now as well as do programs like this. All right, what's the big topic for today? Well, it has to do with a literally earth-shaking event, an event that has to rank up there with the top four or five events of the last century. And indeed, it happened a century ago. Here we are in 2017. This event happened in 1917. I'm speaking, of course, of the revolution in Russia, the revolution that created the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 100 years ago this month. The reality is that that revolution not only transformed the lives of the people in that part of the world, And let's remember Russia, and particularly all of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics, is the largest country by geography in the world. It was then, it is now. It changed the whole world in fundamental ways that I want to talk to you about. It was also, and this is the most important thing, the first sustained effort to go beyond capitalism, to form a kind of new economic system, called socialism. Up until that time, socialists had been active. There had been lots of them. Karl Marx and others were socialists. But they were critics of the existing system. They were interested in changing it. But they had never achieved power within a large society to actually try to do it. And between a critical point of view towards capitalism and figuring out how to build an alternative, there's quite a distance, and they didn't have much time to cover it. They went in a very short time from capitalism in what had been Russia to socialism, or at least the attempt to construct socialism in the new USSR. So let's review a little bit what happened, and even more important, what the lessons are for us now from what happened. Russia in 1917 was the poorest country in Europe, the vast majority of its people living on farms, being illiterate. It was a society that hadn't come out of feudalism, the pre-capitalist system, for a long time. It then got itself involved in World War I, and it was no match for the much more developed British, German, and American uh, forces in that war, so it basically lost that war. And while it was losing the war, it was also becoming clear that the mass of people were no longer uh, willing to live in the kind of society that Russia had been. A top-down society led by a czar, which is the Russian word for emperor, for super king, even bigger than the conventional kings. Uh, 
uh, the early capitalism in Russia from 1850 to the time of the revolution was a bitter, uh, poor capitalism. Think of Russia uh, the way you might think of England at the time of Dickens's novels. Indeed, if you ever want to understand what Russia was like at the time of the revolution, you can't do better than to read the novels of the leading thinker and novelist in Russia at the time, Maxim Gorky, G-O-R-K-Y. In any case, the revolution that bubbled up in the midst of a lost war, a destroyed economy, and a situation in which the existing government had lost all support and confidence from the people. The Tsar abdicated, the Tsar was overthrown, a whole new society was born, but because the war was sapping the strength, the early effort to make a kind of modern constitutional government as the new society didn't succeed either. There was too much suffering and too much turmoil. And in that, a very small political party at the time, the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, later called the Bolsheviks, was able to seize the power. And the, the men associated with it, Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, became the new leaders of this new Soviet Union. It's important to know that this revolution was highly contested, as you might imagine. It was a small political party that emerged from all the chaos and took over the government with the support of some workers, some returning soldiers who literally returned from the war because the war effort had collapsed. And so the rest of the world, which was capitalist at that time, and I'm talking about Western Europe, North America, Japan, they were horrified at the thought that a major country, which Russia was, was going to be now run by, taken over by, led by people who claimed that they were anti-capitalist, that they were going to get rid of capitalism and develop a new system. And so, and this is important because, you know, the Cold War has badly distorted our understanding of this society because we were, as a nation, particularly Americans, at a kind of cold war with them for so long, they tended to be portrayed as terrible bad, by comparison to us as wonderful good, and that's a simple-minded approach which we're not going to indulge ourselves in. After all, the cold war is gone now and we don't have to play by those rules. So it's important to learn some facts in case you didn't know them. Immediately after the revolution, France, Britain, Japan, and the United States supported an effort inside Russia to overthrow that new government. There was a war inside Russia, a civil war, between what was then called the Red Army, led by Trotsky, and the White Army, led by all those in Russia who didn't like that there had been a revolution, and they fought for years to determine whether this new socialist government would survive. In that struggle, France, Britain, the United States, and Japan invaded the Soviet Union, sent troops. The United States sent about 10,000. It's important for folks to understand that the United States invaded the Soviet Union. The reverse never happened. And if you're wondering why the Russians have been worried about the United States, that little fact might help you understand. The last Japanese soldier to leave Russia didn't leave until 1922. That's five years after the revolution of 1917. 
it took that long for this new government, this socialist government, to become secure, to become dominant. In other words, the effort to overthrow the new government failed. The Red Army defeated the White Army, and the foreign troops, including the Americans, were forced to withdraw. But this new government that took over the Soviet Union, this socialist government of Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, and all the rest, uh, began as a terrified government. Since they had been invaded and threatened by a civil war, they were never confident very much. They were frightened. Everything was a little bit of a kind of paranoia that took over. And so here's the adjustments they made. The slogan on which they got into power was the slogan of bread, peace, and land. They would provide food and survival to the Russian people. They would get out of the war, which they did. And they would provide land to the millions of Russian farmers who had no land, who were tenants and who were dependent on large landowners. They did all that. The irony, for some of you interested in the history of socialism, is that this first effort at having a socialist society took as its first major economic act the distribution of land to the mass of peasants. Let me make that clear. The distribution of land as the private property of the individual Russian was the first act of a socialist government. Therefore, to think that socialism means and always has meant the abolition of private property, anyone who says that to you doesn't know anything about Soviet history because their first act was a celebration of private property, making the average Russian peasant, for the first time in many of their lives, the owner of the property they cultivated. By the way, if you want to know why the Russian Red Army defeated the White Army, it's because this act of giving the land to the peasants got the loyalty of the peasants, and that's why the Soviet government survived. They let the land be in the hands of the peasants. What the new socialist government did, and this is so crucial, was to reorganize industry. And here's how they reorganized it. They took the industrial companies away from the private owners. They said to the private owners, you aren't the owners anymore. You can have a job if you want to work here like everybody else, but you don't own anything. They closed the stock market. There was no more buying and selling of shares because the people as a whole, through the government, took over. The government was now the owner-operator of enterprises. They were called state enterprises. The second thing they did was say, we're not distributing resources and products by markets. We're not going to have you borrow, uh, b bargain with him or her over the price of what... No, no, no. We're going to plan it all out. The government is not only going to own and operate the industries, the government is going to distribute. And that became the definition of socialism by this first successful socialist experiment. Can you set up an economy? Their answer was, yes, we think we can. It's going to be private ownership of the land by individual peasants. And in industry, not agriculture, in industry, we're going to have state enterprises owned and operated by the government in the name of the people with the products distributed in state stores 
and according to what we think is a reasonable way to distribute food, clothing, shelter, and everything else among the people. And that was the definition of the 20th century. Socialism came to be understood as government enterprises and planning versus capitalism, which was private enterprises and markets. And eventually the great alternatives, Soviet Union, United States, Soviet Union, public enterprises and planning, the United States, private enterprises and markets. Okay, there were always other definitions of socialism from the beginning. There were socialists who, for example, didn't like what was going on in the Soviet Union. They didn't like it, for example, because they didn't think the government should own everything. They liked there to be private enterprises. The government should regulate them. Socialists usually thought that. Control them, limit them, but not necessarily take them over. Socialists like that didn't like what was happening in the Soviet Union. They particularly didn't like that the Soviet Union, partly because it was terrified, was very limited in terms of what civil liberties and civil rights it allowed, didn't allow other political parties, was very strict, had a powerful government police apparatus. This horrified other socialists. So from the very beginning, there were those socialists who liked and applauded the Soviet Union as the first place socialism got going, but there were plenty of socialists who didn't like what was happening there and wanted to keep a distance. Starting in the 19, early 20s, these two kinds of socialists not only split from one another, but created competing organizations. Those socialists who liked what was happening in the Soviet Union changed their name and called themselves communists. And those who didn't like the Soviet Union held on to the name socialist. And to this day, socialist parties and communist parties are two separate attitudes towards what happened in the Soviet Union. And that continues even though the Soviet Union isn't there anymore. Okay, let's then talk about the more important thing that I want to talk with you about today. What can we say were the achievements of the Soviet Revolution that changed the world? And what were the flaws, the failures, the things we have to learn not to do again, as opposed to the lessons that we can learn about what can be done? I think that's a balanced approach. I think that's what we ought to do with every experiment in changing society. Look at what it achieves, if it gets a chance, and look at what it messes up and what we don't want to see. So let's go with the Soviet Union first. The Soviet Union, by setting industry up as a government enterprise, achieved something absolutely remarkable between 1917 when the society begins and 1989 when it falls apart. It achieves the most rapid economic growth any modern industrial society has achieved up until that point. In other words, if your standard of measurement, if your standard of evaluation is how fast a country can go from poor to not poor, then the Soviet experiment is a success by that standard. Why? Because in 1917, it was the poorest country in Europe. It went through World War I, a civil war, a foreign invasion. In the 1930s, it brought together the individual peasants to whom it had given land and 
pressured them pretty heavily into forming state and collective farms. That roiled up the society, and then they went through World War II. If you're already the poorest countries, you go through two world wars that were more damaging to Russia than to any other country that was involved, and a civil war, and a revolution, then the following statement is a sign of success. By 1975, this poor country, ravaged by war, is the second superpower right after the United States. That is a level of achievement from a modern railroad system to a modern armaments industry to nuclear capability and so on. That is an achievement of economic growth that you have to hand to the Soviet Union because they did achieve that. And you can say what you like. That doesn't go away. That's indeed why so many other countries around the world paid a lot of attention because they too want to go from being very poor in Asia, Africa, and Latin America to a modern industrial powerhouse. They saw the Soviets as the most successful way to do that, the fastest grower, and they went in that direction. Indeed, the one country that has grown even faster for 30 years than the Soviet Union is the country that modeled itself on what the Soviets had done, and that's the People's Republic of China, proving again that this model, this alternative, this kind of socialism does have the ability to say, we grow faster for poor societies than anything else has been able to achieve. The next thing you might list as an achievement was, well, they spread the whole critique of capitalism around the world. They published all the works of Marx and all the other thinkers who have developed critiques, not just of this or that aspect, but of the system as a whole. They made the critique of capitalism known around the world. And in the long run, that may be a bigger achievement than the fast economic growth they got. Only time will tell. Those were the achievements. What about the failures? Well, they have pretty impressive failures, too. If you concentrate, this is the biggest failure, at least in my judgment, if you concentrate power in the hands of the government, it's the owner-operator of enterprises, it's the distributor of goods, you are giving an enormous amount of power to the political leadership of your society. Did the Soviet Union have within it the system of checks and balances that would make sure that that concentrated political and economic power would not be abused? And the answer one has to give is no. They lacked that. And that power was abused. It was abused above all by the leader Stalin, who comes after Lenin dies and after he pushes Trotsky out of the Soviet Union, literally, and his followers as well. You had a society that cut back on civil liberties and civil rights, that was determined to ram through economic development, which they did, but at the price of cutting away personal freedoms and political freedoms and civil liberties, and all of that has to be faced. It means that something was missing. They may have gotten economic growth, but they hadn't done something to make sure that that didn't come with all kinds of negative failures and flaws that society today, evaluating this first effort at socialism, 
would have to say need to be avoided, that the lesson has to be learned. Don't do something or do something they didn't do because you don't want those side effects, if you like, of rapid economic growth that characterized the Soviet Union. And even if those arguments weren't enough, there's a kind of ultimate failure of the Soviet Union to deal with. It collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. It didn't collapse because it was attacked by capitalist countries. It collapsed of its own internal contradictions, to use the language they themselves used. They couldn't manage to survive. That's a very serious flaw for a society that wants to present itself as a model to others, because who else would want to go down that path? So the question that socialists, communists, critics of capitalism are presented with by the history of the Russian Revolution a hundred years ago and by what happened in the Soviet Union since, the question is this. Is there a way to harness, to hold, to get rapid economic growth, which is a condition for escaping poverty? whether you're a family, an individual, or a whole society. Is there a way to get that that doesn't bring with it the absence of personal freedom, the absence of civil liberties, the horrors that happened in the Soviet Union along the way as they fought out the battles to keep themselves going? And I think that question is the number one question for those who are critical of capitalism today. Now that capitalism has shown, particularly in the last 40 years, that the critique that it's an unstable system, the critique that it's an unequal system, the critique that it's therefore an unjust system, is now gaining supporters, that critique is, by the millions, literally every week. The system seems determined to rush toward a level of inequality and instability that will make it unable to survive. And as people ask questions about a system that is abusing so many and serving so few, they will, of course, go back to the biggest critique of the last 300 years of capitalism, which is socialism and Marxism and all of that. And that will bring them to the Soviet Union. So what's the answer? The Soviet Union never changed something fundamental in all of the big changes they made. You can put it this way. Before the revolution, the average worker in industry and in a farm and in a household got up, had their tea and breakfast, and went to work. And the conditions under which they did that after the revolution, weren't that different from what they had been before. Let's take the example of industry, which is what changed the most in Russia. Before the revolution, industrial workers went to work in the morning, worked all day, and went home. The decisions in their enterprises, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what happens with the products of people's labor, that was decided by a tiny group of people. They were called commissars, or in English, commissioners. 
They were state officials because the government now owned and operated enterprises. They weren't the board of directors elected by shareholders because there were no shareholders. They didn't get to elect anybody. Government officials, state officials were put in the position, you're now the board of directors. You 12, you run these factories, you run these stores, you run these offices. For the mass of workers, it really wasn't all that big of a difference. These individuals, private capitalists, were gone. These individuals replaced them, state officials. But the structure, the organization of the enterprise didn't change all that much. They worked, and then they went home. And the fruits of their labor were decided on and distributed by somebody else. To say the same thing in the simplest words possible, the internal organization of the factories, the farms, the stores, the offices didn't change. You didn't have what socialists had talked about, namely the workers themselves running the enterprises, the workers as groups owning and operating. You didn't change it. You didn't keep them private, but now run by the workers. You made them state, but still not run by the workers. Oh yes, by representatives who said they represented the workers. But after all, a private capitalist typically also says that he is doing the best for his workers. The trick will be, and this is the lesson socialists have to learn, that this early experiment, this first experiment in setting up a socialist economy that was started a hundred years ago, this month in Russia, made a mistake. It never understood and it never enacted the transformation of the enterprise itself. It shifted them from private to state, but that's a different matter. It didn't alter that. And in not altering that, it left in place the angers, the resentments, the bitternesses, and the conflicts that go with organizing production so that a mass of people are doing something, a tiny number of people are telling them what to do. This is a problem, has always been one. It's why the master has trouble with the slaves, why the Lord has trouble with the serfs, and why the employer has trouble with the employees. The lesson is that a socialism for the 21st century, the one we're entering, has to learn from the efforts and experiments of the 20th. Don't make that mistake again. If you're going to go beyond capitalism, it has to start and to include the transformation of the workplace, whether that's in an office, a store, a factory, or a household. It has to be democratized. It has to get all the people into a position of being decision makers. That's what a commitment to democratic socialism would have to mean if it's going to learn the lessons of that enormous experiment that changed the world, the Russian Revolution of 1917. You have been listening to economist Richard Wolff speaking about the Russian Revolution, which occurred 100 years ago in 1917. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Richard Wolff for the audio from his show, Economic Update. I also want to thank my guest, Professor Gerald Horn. The music we play this hour included a sample from 
Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, Zimbabwe by Bob Marley, and I Too Dream of Things Beautiful by Navasha Deya. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Thank you for tuning in. Keep raising your voice. Peace. 